from Psalm 84 that we're reading from today, and it's on page 476. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Barca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty, listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Here ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, if, uh, oh, a bit loud. if you haven't uh, clued in already, it's not just the end of a year and the beginning of a new one. It's actually the end of a decade and the beginning of a new decade. That's pretty insane, isn't it? 2020s. And if you've been keeping up with the news, there's been a lot of articles and things about how the last decade, the 2010s, um, have been really significant in terms, especially in terms of tech advances. I mean, just think about all the things that happened just in that short 10-year period and the way that's totally changed how most of us work, rest, play, and interact. So just to give you a bit of a recap, uh, 10 years ago, January 2010, none of these things were around at the time. Can you believe it? iPads, Apple Watches, smartwatches, they only came out in 2010. Instagram and Snapchat only happened in the last decade. Siri or Alexa, you know, smart homes, smart devices, that was also within the last decade. Uber was only a few years ago. Um, some of us don't know how to live without streaming video, but that was all within the last decade as well. If you're more the gaming app type, Pokemon Go was within the last 10 years, or Candy Crush. And of course, the thing that brought them all together uh, is, believe it or not, 4G. Right, 4G um, allowed us to be able to do all of those things that I mentioned uh, just with a smartphone. And so the smartphone has become, in the 2010s, the one thing that you and most of us can't leave our home without. All of that within the last 10 years. Now, you would think with all of those life-changing tech advances that we would be happier, right? Over the last 10 years, all of these things have happened. Surely we're happier. Well, 
My kids will roll their eyes at me because I'm sounding like the old father guy now. But the answer is, of course, no. Because almost every metric shows us the more reliant that people are on their devices and all of those things, social media, the less happy they are. Like youth and children especially so. They've done studies in the 10-year period of the last 10 years how youth and children uh, gauge much lower on general happiness than they were 10 years previously. So what will the next decade, the next 10 years hold? Have you thought about that? In 2030, imagine what life will be like. If we've seen so many advances in just 10 short years, what kind of advances, change will happen in the next 10 years? But more importantly, how do you think our happiness is going to be in the next 10 years? Well, Psalm 84, believe it or not, is important at the beginning of a year and at the beginning of the decade because it's actually all about the happy life. You might not have picked that up when we read it, but it's actually all about the happy life and how to get there. You see, three times in the psalm, you might have noticed in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 12, is the idea of being blessed or blessed. Now, the idea of being blessed in the psalms is basically the idea of those who live the good life. If you're a blessed person in the psalm, then you're someone who lives the good life. And so even some translations will have, instead of blessed is, it'll have happy is. Right? Blessedness is a state of happiness. So if you want the blessed or happy life, Psalm 84 is a psalm you can't afford not to pay attention to. So we're going to dip into it today, the beginning of a new year, a new decade. Why don't you pray with me and we'll ask God to show us himself through his word. Let's pray. Father God, we ask more than just a desire for superficial happiness, that you would give us a deep desire for lasting, life-changing, eternal happiness, that you actually want to give every single creature that you've made. Some of us feel like we've got it. Some of us had it, but have lost sight of it. Others have never experienced it. You know where each person is at, especially at a time when we're burdened by anxiety and bushfires and disaster. You know where we're all at, Father. And so I pray that you would now work in all of our hearts and work through these words that I'll speak through your word in Psalm 84 to show us the journey to happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, there's no accident that we've got three uh, times that the idea of blessed or happy comes in Psalm 84, because that's also a marker for the movement of this psalm through three major sections. And if you've got the outlines uh, inside the bulletin, uh, they basically mark three sections, longing, journey, and then arrival at happiness. So let's go. Firstly, longing. Keep your Bibles open. Let's have a look at the psalm again. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have a young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. So the psalm, it begins with longing, right? It's a longing to be somewhere with someone. But it's not just a longing, like occasionally I'll long for a big juicy double burger with bacon and cheese inside. This is a deep ache, because you'll note the verbs, right? Yearning, fainting. That is, if, if I don't have it, I'm just going to collapse. Or maybe you feel that way about burgers. but A crying out. Yeah, really strong verbs. But also note the subject, what part of a person is longing. It, it, my soul longs. 
My heart yearns and faints. My flesh is going to fail if I don't have it. You see? It's really strong, isn't it? Reminds us of a famous psalm. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water. And who doesn't know that image in drought? Animals panting, longing for a lick of cool, refreshing water. That kind of longing. Now, we're familiar with that sort of longing, especially when we um, read about or have experienced or hear about someone in love, right? Because that kind of longing has inspired countless songs and poems. So from the famous William Shakespeare, Romeo said, See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. He's a bit of a master, isn't he? You could steal that one. Or more familiar, something like this. I have died every day waiting for you. Darling, don't be afraid. I have loved you for a thousand years. I'll love you for a thousand more. Now, many of us have felt that longing before. It may be romantic love, but it's not just romantic love, is it? Maybe any deep love you have for any dear friend or a parent or a sibling or a child, and when you're separated, the pain, the longing to be back together, you felt that, haven't you? So what does the psalmist, the one who writes the psalm, what does he long for in Psalm 84? Well, verse 1, he longs for God's dwelling place. In verse 2, he longs for the courts of the Lord. Now, in ancient Israel, it's really easy what he's referring to. He, he means the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where the temple is also sometimes called Zion. So you'll he see that word Zion come up later. So why does he long for the temple? And it's not because the temple is some theme park that you have to see or architectural wonder like Disneyland or, you know, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's not because of that. But because, quite simply, the temple is where God's presence is. It's where God is. So a longing for the temple is to, to, to long to be with God. And so he says there, my heart and my flesh cry out for what? For the living God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. You need to know in the Bible, there are six key places where we see the temple. There's actually seven. You can try and figure out later which one I missed out on. Um, but six temples in the Bible, if you like. The first temple is heaven. Where God is, is his dwelling place, yeah? But then right at the beginning of the Bible, when God creates the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden, without using the word temple, is pictured as a temple, as a reflection of the heavenly temple where God was going to walk amongst his people. It's a garden temple where Adam and Eve were his priests. That's Eden. And then later on, after sin um, and the fall, and God calls his people, and, and he gives them the land, it's in Jerusalem, and that's where we're at. Jerusalem and Zion, that's the next temple. The earthly temple in Jerusalem becomes a copy of heaven's sanctuary. And by the way, there ends up being two Jerusalem temples. The first one under Solomon, and it gets destroyed, and then they rebuild another one. But we'll just categorize them as one um, in terms of the thought of what, what the temple is. But that's the next temple. Israel's temple in Jerusalem was a copy of God's dwelling place in heaven. Now, it doesn't mean that God was now confined to the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but he chooses it that this would be the holy place of his presence on earth. And so you would come there to meet with God. And so this was the one place in ancient Israel where heaven and earth would touch. Right? Or if you like, there would be a very thin place between earth and heaven. 
And that's why the psalmist longs for it. Let me show you another psalm. We'll come back to the other temples later on. But let me show you the other, another psalm. Psalm 27, verse 4. And again, psalms are basically songs. They're poems. So you've got to really get the, the imagery, the vibe, the feeling. But look at this psalm. Look what uh, the writer says here. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Now, we are in a time and an era where there is no more temple in Jerusalem. Again, I'll come back to that idea later. But I just want to ask this question as we come to the end of our first point. Do we at all resonate? Do we feel the kind of longing that both Psalm 84 and now Psalm 27, even Psalm 42, talks about? That kind of deep ache and longing. Do we yearn? Do we ever cry out for God's presence? To faint if we don't have His closeness with us. Do we long that much for Him? Is it like a a thirst and a hunger that we would pant to see His glory and gaze upon His beauty? Is He even that lovely to us? Is He that precious to us? And of course, here I'm talking to those of you who are followers of Jesus. Do you ever have that longing? Do you have it now? Uh, John Piper, whose voice we heard on that um, promo video, his first and most famous book was called Desiring God. And we kind of are familiar with it now, so we don't think much of it. But actually, it, it was a really significant book because people didn't talk about, in, in, the, in those circles, in our circles, about desiring God. And he kind of opened the door for that to get us to think, do we desire God? And his famous line is, of course, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Do we seek and long for satisfaction, and do we desire God? That's the first question we have to ask ourselves, because this psalm will be so unfamiliar to us. It'll be some guy who wrote it 3,000 years ago. It'll have no touching point in our lives if we don't feel or want to feel that longing. So that's my first point, longing. But the second is journey, because at that time, the temple wasn't everywhere. The temple was in one place on earth. It was in Jerusalem. So you must journey to the temple. So let's come to our next bit. The next blessed, verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Barca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Zion is the same as Jerusalem. See, Psalm 84 is actually a pilgrimage psalm. It's a road trip song, right, for the annual journey that Israelites were to make to the temple in Jerusalem. Now here, you've got to imagine, even as we read these verses, you've got to imagine this journey in the ancient world where there are no planes, no trains, no cars, and not even shock horror, not even any bikes. What a miserable existence, right? It's a hard dangerous, long journey. It talks about the Valley of Baca. That was likely a valley near Jerusalem that was on the way, but it was known as a dry, desert-like valley. Death Valley, Grand Canyon, that kind of thing. Baca also sounds like the word for weeping. So some older translations will have Valley of Weeping or Valley of Tears. 
And so this journey is going through valleys, dry desert valleys, where you're thirsty but there is no water. Dry desert valleys where there's weeping and tears. That's the kind of journey it's talking about. And yet, you see, that's not what the experience of the psalmist is as he takes this journey. Because like the marathon runner, um, and I only know this not by experience because I don't run marathons, uh, but Marshall probably does. You, you visualize the finishing line during the most difficult miles, and you just see yourself keeping on going because of visualizing the finish. And so you're actually able to run not just keep going, but run with even more energy because you can see the finish line. Well, this psalmist is like that. His longing to be with God is so much that it actually strengthens him even through the valleys. That, that's the kind of idea we get in those verses. And so you see that Baca gets transformed from desert to, to, to springs. And tears of weeping gets turned into refreshing rains. And every step is strengthened even as they walk through and journey through valleys. Right? That's the image there. And of course, the journey does come to an end because they arrive at the destination, the temple. And the temple is the place where God promised not only to be present with His people, remember the temple is about presence, but it's also the place where God is going to hear His people's prayers. And so that's why the next few verses, verse 8, still part of the same section, hear my prayer. Lord God Almighty, listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Now, verse 9 is interesting because you've got this verse 8 prayer, but then verse 9 is actually asking God to look on our shield and anointed one is parallel. So this shield, all right, is their anointed one. The other word for anointed one is, of course, Messiah. Prayer is linked with the Messiah, God look on our prayer, God look on our Messiah. Now, that's no accident that it's linked together because I think it's deliberately recalling the day when that temple that they're journeying to was dedicated. See, when this temple was first built and the one who built it was a man called Solomon, right? Some would say the greatest, at least the wisest king of Israel. And he was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. And he, as the king, prayed this prayer as their Messiah on the day of the dedication of the temple. Have a look, it's on the screens. He prayed to God, may your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer. Your servant, when he says your servant, he means him, him the Messiah, prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And it goes on, have a read later on, 1 Kings 8. You see, God will hear the prayers of His people because He hears the prayer of His servant, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And because He has promised to do that at the place, the temple that He has chosen. All those things are really key. They get linked together. The temple, prayer, Messiah. Now you fast forward and you want to see how this is fulfilled in Jesus. Remember the temples of the Bible, the six temples. Jesus is the fourth one and the clincher, isn't it? The fourth temple is Jesus. When Jesus comes, he is not only the Messiah, the greater son of Solomon. He's also, as he tells us in John chapter 2, the perfect temple. You know that Jesus is the temple. He has replaced all other earthly temples, physical temples, because as we celebrated in Christmas, he is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Real question. 
God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. God has come into flesh. And so in his flesh, in his body, is the temple. He is the dwelling place of God. He is God's presence in full. Do you see, our prayers are effective because Jesus links those three things. Temple, prayer, Messiah. As our Messiah, he is the temple. He's also, by the way, the priest. The great priest who intercedes for God's people. And so our prayers are absolutely 100% effective because of Jesus. And I wonder if we really grabbed a hold of that, how that would change our prayer lives. Because we, I don't know about you, but this is a tremendous privilege, right? Do you know God never promises to hear the prayers of everyone, no matter who they pray to or what God they pray to? Right? It's great in disaster that we always call people to pray, but sometimes what we mean by that is just pray to whatever God you pray to. And God never promises that he will hear everyone's prayer. He does promise, however, to hear the prayers of his people who pray in the name of the Messiah Jesus. He absolutely guarantees that he will hear your prayers and respond. Do you know that? If you are a child of God, if you belong to the people of God, he promises to hear your prayers because of Jesus. When you pray in the name of Jesus, he will hear. And I wonder how seldom... We grab hold of that privilege because if we knew that, then you would know that we, who are God's people, praying in the name of Jesus, who have a relationship with God, we stand between a world and the God of the universe. And we stand between the gap of the world with God. And we become the channel of prayers. And we can shake nations through prayers. And we can change things through prayers. Do you believe that? Because that's what God says prayer is about. And how seldom do we take hold of that promise? My prayer life is so lacking compared with the privilege that God calls me to pray. And now, it's not a chance for us to get, a time for us to feel guilty about our lack of prayer, but really to spur us on to really think of the privilege of prayer. And this year, if anything else, to think about that. Now, we're going to do that. By the way, I don't know if you've known this, but there's a couple of people who started a group um, and they pray with technology. So technology is a great thing, okay? Don't hear me say it's only bad, but through, um, through an app called Zoom, um, it's now 9.30 p.m., four times a week, and it's only going to be for 10 minutes a day, four to- oh, 10 minutes each time, four, four times a week, Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. People from this church will link, uh, hop onto Zoom and pray for 10 minutes. Can you do that? 10 minutes of prayer, set an alarm, 9.30. Right, just pray. Pray for your friends, pray for the world, pray for anything. Now, if you're interested in that, right, look out for some notices. Um, Nasia Ness are going to tell us more about it. But I think that's a pretty easy thing, right? 10 minutes a day, God's people join together and we just pray because we know the privilege of prayer. Now, the other thing I want to say about prayer is that prayer is our journey of the soul. Now, we talked about this point, it's about journey, right? Do you know that prayer is your pilgrimage? You don't take a physical pilgrimage because the temple is no longer in Jerusalem, but you take a spiritual pilgrimage every time you go to God in prayer. You are coming to Him in prayer because you get to come face to face with the God who loves you, the living God of the universe. And so your pilgrimage through prayer will take, can take you through your valleys of Baca. And you can see them become the place of springs. You can be going through the hardest times, but through the journey of the soul through prayer, 
You can see weeping turn into joy. So I want to ask you, have you or are you experiencing these valleys? Are you in your backup period? And what have you done with that? Has it led you to longing and journey and pilgrimage through prayer? Because if you do, God can turn your valleys into springs. Some of us, when we go through valleys, we run away from God because it's too painful to think about coming to Him. But actually, you need to do the opposite. When you go to Him through the valleys, you are taking your pilgrimage of the soul in prayer to see it turn into springs. So maybe that's a word for you today. All right, last point. So we've got the journey, right? And now we've got point three, the arrival at the courts of the temple, which is the arrival at blessedness, at happiness. So verse 10, famous verse, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. All right, blessedness, happiness. Where is it found? It's found in the presence of God for those who are right with him, for those who are in right relationship with him. I wonder if you can say with the psalmist that better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. I mean, just think for a moment of the person on earth you love most to be with. And then think of the one place on earth you'd like to be with them. It's not so hard for me at the moment to think about that because only a month ago, my wife and I had our 20th anniversary, just the two of us in Thailand. That'd be it, right? The person I want to be with the most at a wonderful place. And I ask myself, could I really say, as I think about us enjoying Thailand, better is one day in God's place with God than a thousand in Thailand with my wife. Wow. Honestly, probably not. Couldn't really say that. And chances are neither could you. We've got to ask the question, why is there such a gap between the longing that the psalmist describes and our experience? I mean, we long for God, we just don't long for God that much. We are satisfied with God, but why not that much? Why can't we say better is one day in the presence of God than a thousand elsewhere? Well, Psalm 84 actually gives us two reasons why we don't long as we ought to, and therefore why we're not as happy as we ought to be. The first reason is because of sin. You got that? Because of sin. It says there that it contrasts being a doorkeeper in the house of God with dwelling in the tents of the wicked. You saw that, right? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wicked. There's a contrast there. He's saying, I would rather be a cleaner or a butler in God's house than live in luxury in the mansion of the wicked. That's what he's saying. See, one big blocker to happiness in God is sin or wickedness. And I wonder if you know that from experience. I think we all do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've seen periods in your life, maybe even now, where sin in your life blinds you. It leads you away from God. Or it fills you with such shame that you feel like, I can't come to God, and so you don't long for God because you feel so ashamed you need to run from Him. And that may be your experience right now. Well, if that's you, you need to remember there is good news. The temple was the place where sinners could be made right with God. That's why God provided a temple, not just as a meeting place, but as a place of sacrifice. The Old Testament temple in Jerusalem, 
right? Through the sacrifice of the priests, through animals, people's sins could be cleansed. They could become right with God and so be in the place of blessing and happiness. Well, that's been superseded of the greater temple. The new temple of Jesus is sacrificed, not through animals, but the death of God's only Son in our place for our sins on the cross. The temple of Jesus is the one place you need to turn to where you can be made right with God, faultless and blameless. So come to Him. When you feel sin block your relationship with God, it's even more reason to run to Jesus, isn't it? But that's the first reason we don't long. It's maybe because of sin, maybe habitual sin, maybe persistent sin. The second reason, though, is not just sin, because it also says there, right, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The elsewhere is not always the sinful tense of the wicked. The elsewhere could be good things, good places that also promise some measure of happiness. See, not every alternative to God is sin. God gives us lots of good things, and they also offer happiness. And He wants us to enjoy it and be happy. But if you make any of these good things God things, if you make them ultimate, then they become idols, and you end up missing out on the best as you pursue and settle for just the good. Right? You miss out on the best when you settle just for the good. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia series, he's famous for, for this, uh, this quote. He says, God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Our desires are too weak. We seek happiness, right? Like the kids who are happy to play with the mud when a beach resort holiday by the sea is promised to them. And he says, that's like us and God. It's not that our desires are too strong, they're too weak. We settle for the good rather than the best. See, one of the best prayers you can pray is for God to wean you away from weak desires for lesser things and replace them with strong desires for greater things. And even in this psalm, he promises to be more satisfying than anything good even that the world offers you. See, verse 11, look again at verse 11. If in your life you look elsewhere other than God to give you, for example, security, don't we all want that? Security is a good thing. Whatever kind of security. Look at verse 11, though. He says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. You will never have security like you do have in Jesus. And he promises that to you. Or if you look elsewhere to give you approval, respect, or even love, look at verse 11. It says, the Lord bestows favor and honor. God is going to give you an approval not based on your performance, approval that you can never lose. As Johnny said in Romans chapter 8 at the beginning, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a much better approval to have, isn't it? And he gives it to you. Or if you look elsewhere to give you pleasure, look again at verse 11. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. If you are right with him through Jesus, he will not withhold one ounce of good from you, ultimate pleasure. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here today, God wants you to know that nothing you desire or are chasing for in this life can compare with Him. An ancient historian called Augustine said that God has made us for Himself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him. Or in other words, God has given us a hole in our hearts and it's a God-shaped hole that only He can fill. Now, if that's you and you're still seeking, I want to say, Come back, especially in February, and you'll hear some of the answers in our three big questions series. 
to followers of Jesus, and that's the most of you today. Have you ever thought about what is the most precious thing nowadays that you can give to someone? What's the most precious thing nowadays that you can give to someone? And you probably guess it's not material stuff. And you might say it's love, but love is kind of abstract. So how would you show your love? How would you really show that you care about someone? Now, I want to say that used to be one of the most precious things, if not the most precious thing, is physical presence. All right? If you can be with someone physically, and so, um, you know, a few decades ago, hospitality or even in, in the, the psalmist world, why journey and pilgrimage, space is the most precious thing you can give to people. When you open up your home and invite them into your space, when you take the journey and bother to go to someone, space is the thing that we can give to people that show that we love them and we care for them, we honor them. But you know what? It's no longer space anymore because space has been bridged through technology, hasn't it? I mean, just even think about the last 10, 10 years, even the last 20 years, we can bridge technology. I can talk to someone all the way on the other side of the world and bridge space with technology. And so bridging space is effortless. Space is no longer the greatest thing we can give to someone to show them that we love them. So what is the most precious gift we can give to someone now? Can you guess? It's time, isn't it? It used to be space. It's now time. And because of our technology-driven world and our app-driven world and our social media-driven world, time is not just quantity time. It's actually quality time, isn't it? To actually to give our attention, our mindfulness to someone is the most precious thing you can give them. Now, where am I getting at? Getting at this. We will not experience the happiness of being in the presence of God if we never give Him the time and attention. You got that? If you never give God time and attention... You will never experience both the longing and the satisfaction that the, the psalmist is talking about. And again, because of our always wide, always connected world, we are missing out on true satisfaction in the presence of God. So let's talk about time. It's true communally. When it comes to church, when it comes to meeting with God's people, remember the six temples in the Bible, the fifth one is church. The church, the people of God, not this building. This building is just a rain shelter. We don't even own it. It's now an air-conditioned rain shelter, which is slightly better, right? But the people of God, meeting with God's people, is the temple of... And so we've actually got to give our time to it. You know, attendance and engagement with even regulars is a struggle now for every church. It used to be that if you were a regular churchgoer, you would be at church every Sunday of the week, of the month. Now a regular, like a real committed regular, would be at church three times a week, I mean three times a month. If, if you are um, uh, connected to church, probably just two times a month is kind of the, the statistics nowadays. I'm not saying that to shame you, I'm just saying things have changed. Right? Used to be that committed people were there every single week. Now the committed are there maybe three times a month. At church, things have changed, and we don't give our time and attention to these things that are really valuable. But I don't want to talk about that primarily. I want to finish by talking about our personal time, our personal time and attention with God. So you know that we've been doing these um, surveys uh, as a as a sweat community, and thank you for filling them out for those who have over the last two years. But we've discovered that, and thank you for your honesty because it's anonymous, so you can be honest, right? 
But of the people we surveyed, less than half of our church have a regular, what used to be called a quiet time with God. Less than half have a regular quiet time. And even when we do, I wonder how much of it is quality time, where it's away from distractions, away from notifications on your phones and devices. Or we just kind of sneak in some time here and there on the way to things. And I just wonder sometimes, if I related to my wife Karen and engaged with my wife Karen in the way that I engage with God, with all the distractions, how would my marriage be? Like, can you imagine going on a date with the one you love, with your spouse, even boyfriend or girlfriend, and you're just on your phones. And every time your phone pings, you're looking at that and replying to messages. I take it if that's a habit, you're probably not going to have a very good relationship. But we're like that with God, right? And we think that's okay. So we've really got to think, where is our time, that most precious thing we can give and invest in, and attention when it comes to seeking and being with God And so there are probably three things you might want to keep in mind. If you want to develop a good personal time with God, first thing I could say is, have you ever thought about not using your smartphones to read your Bibles? All right? Grab that paper Bible you've got. If you don't have one, you know, take one of the church ones. Away from your smartphone. So as you read, you're not going to get notifications popping up. That can help. It's not a a law, but it's just a recommendation. When it comes to time for praying, try and block off a time and a place where you can pray and only hear yourself pray. To, like, to actually be able to hear yourself pray out loud if you can and only hear that without other distractions. Now, that's not going to be possible for everyone, right? I know for Karen, my wife, the kids are usually running around the house when she's trying to pray. And apart from the times where she goes to go to the, the cafe, um, what she does is she writes her prayers because right? it helps her concentrate. She tries to pray out loud and her head's going to get distracted. So she's writing prayers as she, pray, as she writes, she is praying. Okay? Maybe that'll help you. If you really want to get your prayer life kicked off, here's another good recommendation. I found this book particularly helpful. It's a fairly new book. It's 28 days, four weeks to grow in prayer. It's not just about prayer. It's actually a devotional. Each day you'll get a little bit of the Bible and it will teach you something about prayer and then get you to pray it. And I guarantee if you do this every day for 28 days, you will have a new habit that you'll be so thankful for. Great book, Growing in Prayer. So it's a new year, it's a new decade. And you know, it's a time to make New Year's resolutions. So can I encourage you to have a think about what New Year's resolution you would like to make? If you're coming from a place where you've really just spent no regular time, haven't even thought about daily Bible reading or prayer, then let's take baby steps. If you're coming from nothing, then maybe a New Year's resolution is what? 10 minutes, three times a week. Can you do that? 10 minutes, three times a week. All right, pick your three times a week. Set an alarm for yourself and a notification. Three times a week, 10 minutes, spend it reading a bit of the Bible, praying to God, in a place and a time that you can hear yourself pray. Just talk to Him. That's what prayer is. Now, if you're already doing that, but it's kind of irregular, then maybe your New Year's resolution is make it every day. Right? If it's from nothing, the three times a week, ten minutes. If you're doing that kind of already, well, try and make it every day, because an everyday habit is something that's not going to be easily dropped. If you are already doing every day, or basically every day, then how about this year make a New Year's resolution to double the time you spend? Or do it twice a day. Do it once in the morning, first thing when you get up, 
once an evening. I'll leave it up to you. But take it up the next step every day. Or take it one step further. Have you ever thought about setting aside regular times, not just to pray, but to fast? Right? Skip a meal, skip two meals. But not just because you want to be on a diet or something, but actually because you want to spend it in prayer. So what is your New Year's resolution? Because here's the thing. The most precious thing we can give in our technologically wired world is time, mindfulness, attention. And if we're ever going to have that kind of longing and happiness that comes from being satisfied with our longing for God, right, then we've got to actually give that sort of time. So may that be your New Year's resolution. I'll get the band to come up. We're going to sing in response, and then we're going to have communion after that. Um, during this song, uh, because we're short of time, we're going to also be collecting our offertory. Now, this is a great time of the year if you give electronically or if you don't give electronically to set up electronic giving, or if you do give electronically, your circumstances have changed, right, to con consider your giving for this year and either renew it or review it. But if you do give um, in terms of uh, physical money, then the bags will come around. If you're new, we don't want any money from you. Just pop in the Welcome to Church cards. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but for the regulars, you know what to do with the bags. Um, let's sing. And then after that, we'll go into a time of communion.